As we have sung your praises already, I pray that you received glory and honor from us. That it was a sweet, fragrant offering given to you. That it is not something we just do because it's a, it's a Sunday morning thing, but it's something that's offered from our hearts to you because you alone are worthy of praise. You alone are God. And we want to submit our lives under you. We want to follow you. We want to learn from your word. We want to love each other the way that you have called us to. We want to reach out into our kingdom because that's the commission that you've given us. Into our community, rather. We want to reach those who don't know you. We want to share your love with people. So God, as we consider those things, as we are reminded of them, may you lead us in that direction. May you give us the courage that we need to step out in faith. May you give us the words to say. May you give us grace and kindness that we would approach things in a way that honors you, that we might come up to somebody and and, and show them that we can disagree with them, but we can do that in a way that honors and respects them. God, we pray that many in this Bow Valley would come to faith in Jesus. God, we want to pray for those this morning as, as they're away. There are many traveling. There are many who are unable to be here for health reasons or, or other things that perhaps we don't know about. And so we want to lift them up to you if they're not here this morning. I know there are some watching online. May they know that they are part of our family and that we love them. Those who are traveling or, or out of service or, or away from this place today, that they would know that as well, even though they can't hear it or see it, but that they would know that they are part of this family and that we are praying for them. God, it is an honor and a blessing to be part of your family. I pray that we might love each other more and more. That we might seek to grow in our faith and help others to grow. God, as we pass out the offering now, we want to be good stewards of all that you have entrusted to us. And so, God, may we give cheerfully whatever it is that you have called us to give. And may you take it and may you multiply it and may you use it for your kingdom, for your honor and glory. God, be with us in these moments now. Amen. All right, I promise we're going to finish chapter 32 today. Third week is the charm. But just before I get there, I just, I just have to say something that, well, I have to apologize for something I said last week. Yes, scary. Every now and then, Shayla will remind me that I've mixed up my words and I've said something out of order and it's a little bit heretical. And I feel like you always are very gracious and you know that. Well, this time I didn't say something like that. This time I was just very flippant with my words. And so I need to apologize. I made a, a, a statement uh, to get a quick little laugh about coaching about the Calgary Flames. And I 
I realized as soon as that was done and when I went home that if anybody from the Calgary Flames staff happened to be coming to worship or coming to come into church and, and want to know who Jesus is, and I threw them under the bus, that I lost all credibility with them. And so I need to be more careful about my words, and so I wanted to apologize for that. And I hope you understand that, that I, don't, I didn't actually mean that, and, and I shouldn't have tried to get that laugh in that moment. That was, that was not appropriate. So I do apologize for that. Uh, let's open 32 together, and as we start, I want to... I want to quote somebody that I didn't get permission to, but she's up teaching Sunday school, so it's okay. Uh, on, on Thursday at her Bible study, Sarah said something in the midst of our conversation that really stuck with me. Um, one of the neat things that we're doing right now is every single one of our Bible study groups are in First Thessalonians. We're at various places in there, but so maybe you've come to this session already. I think everyone actually has. Um, if, if you haven't, that's okay, but... This conversation was had about how we can intentionally come alongside people and help them in their spiritual growth. How do we enter into that journey? And Sarah made this comment where she said that we ought to expect that when we come to church, it's not just about worshiping God, though that is central, but that we're inviting our church family into our lives to help us grow. And when we do that, what does that mean? That means that we're ready for maybe a little rebuke, maybe some correction, maybe some encouragement in an area that we're not living in. And I think even saying that makes us uncomfortable and kind of want to go out that door and out the back and listen online where nobody can say anything to us. But that statement she said has been stuck with me because if we want to grow in our faith and in our knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, then we have to do that corporately. We need to invite each other in. And, and so I hope that in the coming weeks ahead that we do that, that we have the, cur- the, the, the bravery to do that, but we also have the kindness and the gentleness to do that. None of it is ever meant to be like, hey, I got my life in order. Can I call you to you have your life in order? That's just, you all know that that's not true. Is life is one big mess and we're navigating one point to another. But when somebody comes alongside you and challenges you in a way or, or calls it out and says, you know what, you've been doing this and this isn't right. And I, I only say that because I love you and I want you to grow in your faith. If we can become a church body that does that, man, we can change the world. And so I just wanted to state that. And I wish Sarah was sitting there so she could just pat Sarah on the back later when you see her. It was one of those moments. All right, verse 15 is where we're going to begin uh, today. But just before we finish this section, I just want to highlight the last two weeks really quickly, as fast as I can, just to get the point across. Moses has gone up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments from God. And while he's up there in this conversation, the people turn back to a cultural familiarity. They go, Moses is gone. We don't know when he's coming back. Um, we're going to serve God. We're going to worship God. But we also would really like it if, if Aaron could make us another God, one that we could see and worship. Because if we can see it, then it's not something that, you know, like the one true God that we can't see. And, and so they kind of go, let's, let's do all of this. Let's worship all these many gods. They came from a polytheistic nation. That was normal to them. And while we in our culture maybe don't come from a polytheistic nation, we do come from a many-worship nation where we worship things like money, sports, hobbies, careers, media, you know, fill in the blank. 
And so we're not very much different as we're sucked into our cultural moment where we think, man, you know, I can read the Bible for five minutes and pray for two minutes and I can grow in my spiritual walk, but I'm going to spend hours and hours and hours on my hobbies and my other things that I care about. Because that's normal. But the reality is, is God says he alone is worthy of worship. We can't have it both ways. We can't worship God and something else. Jesus said it very plainly in Matthew 6.24. He says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve what? God and money. Man, I think living in the, maybe the most affluent part of the world really is a hard thing for that sense. Because how much of our time and our effort do we put so that our bank account is a little bit higher? So that we can buy something else a little bit more? And so it's easy for us to look at the Israelites and go, how would you worship this calf? Well, if somebody looked at our own life and said, why do you spend so much time doing that? Then we looked at the next kind of section in, in 32. And it's a really tough section where, where it looks like, it reads like God says to Moses, you know what, I've had it. I'm done with these people. I'm going to destroy them and I'm going to make you a great nation. And, and we talked about how really what's happening is Moses was being tested. Will you be the one true leader to, to intercede on behalf of the people? Will you step into that or will you look at the people and go, man, they're screw-ups, I'm done. Forgetting that, oh, wait. Moses has done his fair share of that already to this point too. Again, loving people is a messy business. And many of you know this as you've tried to help people only to have them reject that or even maybe even get angry with you and then get frustrated and say, you're not helping enough. And you're thinking, man, all I'm doing is trying to help. And it can be very easy, and I'm sure it was very easy for Moses to go, yeah, let's get rid of him and start over. I'm done. But he intercedes and he pleads with God, but he pleads with God by God's great name. He pleads with God because of his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so it says that God relents. And we talked about how it's not as though God's flippant and gets angry and just randomly chooses, I'm going to destroy people. But he calls us in into ways in which we can wrestle with him so that we might know and we might learn what his will is and we might call on his will, remind ourselves of that will and enter into what, what, whatever the role is that he has called for us. So for now, Moses passes that test and, and this morning he's going to do well again. But what we're going to read, and I just want to preface this before we get there because this is a real tough section, is we're going to read Moses coming down from the mountain, his response to what happens And what God calls him to do, and we're going to see that 3,000 people are slaughtered. And there's no easy way to tie that up into a neat bow and say, here's the theological, it's done, no problem. It's messy, and it's painful. And nothing I'm going to say is going to take the sting away from that. I'm not going to give you some perfect answer so that you just no longer struggle with this. But I do want to enter into this because there's many passages in the Old Testament that we have to wrestle with God's vengeance, with his justice. The truth is we want to serve a God who's loving, but when it affects us, we maybe want only loving. But when it affects others, we call for justice. We want a God that's just and loving, but we don't know how to hold those things at the same time. When should I offer mercy and and when shouldn't I? 
Those are hard questions to answer. And so when we read stories in the Old Testament where wars come out, or or like this moment where God actually commands the death of people, we go, how can can a loving God do this? And so we're going to appeal to God's character. We're going to look at that. We're going to try and wrestle with the doctrine of total depravity and understand who we are, who God is, and what that means in our relationship. But again, I'm not going to be able to do this in such a way that you just walk away from here going, oh yeah, that's fine, no problem. Because the loss of life is tragic, and it's more tragic to God than it is to us. So let's read together, starting at verse 15, and we'll enter into some of the tough things. But let me also say this, as I worked really hard this week at tying it up in a nice, neat bow, and I finished my sermon and I threw it out, because I realized that that was not where it needed to go. And actually, there's a main point of the text that hopefully we're going to see near the end, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time. So verse 15 says, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. As soon as they came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. He threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. They are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let anyone who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in this fire, and out came this calf. It's okay to laugh there, by the way, because that's ridiculous. We'll talk about that. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of the enemies, Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate, sorry, from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. The sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and on that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. 
But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. See, this is why I have the conviction that we need to preach through the entire Bible because we come to stuff like this that no preacher in his right mind would go, hey, I got an idea. But this is where our faith really comes, where push comes to shove. Do we believe in the God, the one true God who has created all things? Do we believe in the God of Scripture? And do we believe Scripture is true? Well, then how do we wrestle with some of these very difficult things? And I want to say this very clearly. It's okay for us to wrestle with this. It's okay for you to have some doubts and some concerns and to go, God, how, why, I don't understand. Because that's the first place where we get to a place where we're going to actually learn. Is when we say, God, I don't get it. Why would you? And again, sometimes we're going to get some clarity and sometimes we're not. Today we're going to have some clarity, but it's also not going to make the sting of it any less. So, Moses comes down the mountain. And all of a sudden the text shifts very quickly to Joshua, just for a moment. And, you know, Joshua's going to become kind of, depending on how you want to define it, the greatest military leader ever. But Joshua is hearing what's happening, and he goes, there's a sound of war down at the camp. And, of course, we see that it's not war. It's not defeat. It's not enemies. It's, I don't know how to say it any nicely. They're partying way too aggressively. How much do you have to be, like, singing and dancing and yelling for it to sound like war? This is something that is not honoring to God here by any stretch. Now what's interesting here, I'm just going to take a real quick side tangent because I told a few people that I would. Joshua is Moses' second in command. And and what we're going to see, well, we're going to see it real briefly as we finish Exodus. But as you read through the rest of the Pentateuch, you're going to see that Joshua is being um, mentored into the role of future leader of Israel. And at our... Last board meeting, last week, and and with a few people on the leadership team, we've been discussing this idea of succession, this idea of looking for and equipping the next generation of leaders. And so we were having a conversation because there's quite a few people on our leadership team uh, that their terms end um, at the end of August of 2024. And so Little passages like this get me thinking, going, are we as a church looking for those future people so that the future health of our church is constantly in a good space? And COVID did something where we basically just kind of extended terms for people because we couldn't have a meeting all together. We didn't know how to kind of figure all the details out of those things. And I think in doing that, sometimes we have lost just a little bit of focus on there's still leadership, we're still trying to accomplish things, but forgetting to look ahead and to go, there's no nice way to say it, is we're, as we get older, if we hold on to the reins for things, then there comes a place where we're no longer able to do it. And if we haven't mentored that next generation, those next people, equipped them and help them into the place of ongoing leadership, and we see this sometimes in churches, then that church ends up with a lack of leadership. And then a lot of dangerous things can happen. Well, the same is true of the people here. 
And we're going to see this as Moses does well again here. But in the book of Numbers, Moses disobeys God in a very specific way. And all of a sudden, he gets told, you're not going to enter the promised land, Moses. You're going to lead the people there still, because that's what I called you to. But you're not going to go in. And so all of a sudden, we see a very serious um, equipping of Joshua and commissioning of Joshua to take over those reins. And so if you get asked by somebody on our leadership team, hey, would you be interested in this, this team sitting down and kind of having a conversation with us? It's not because they're just trying to fill a, body with a, fill a position with a warm body so that they can jet off. They're going to mentor you and equip you and help you in that process, but they're seeing a gift in you. They're seeing strengths and abilities to help you into that role. And so I would ask that if they do that, that you would just pray about that. Our annual meeting is coming up in May. And so it might sound like a long time, but Christmas is going to be here before we know it. And then all of a sudden, you know, January is a write-off because nobody wants to go outside. And then all of a sudden we're at February and then it's like, oh, here, it's coming. So if somebody does approach you, consider that. Okay, so Joshua and Moses begin having this conversation. Moses goes, no, this is, this is a problem. I'm going down. And then notice what Moses, well, he sees it and notice what the word says. His anger burned hot. Now, who was here last week? What should we remember from last week? What does God's anger do? Burns hot. And so what we see here is Moses' response is actually exactly the same as God's. And so what Moses does is he, in well, what seems like, again, in a moment of rage and anger, he throws the Ten Commandments and, and breaks them on the edge of the mountain. And I always thought as a kid, like, man, Moses, that was probably dumb. You shouldn't have done that. But as scholars, as I started to read more, scholars point out at great length that there's, some, there's symbolism here, that Moses is breaking the Ten Commandments because the people have broken the Ten Commandments. Right? We looked last week at at least one, two, three, you know, six, seven, probably all of them if you think about it, if you think about it long enough, are being broken in this situation. And so Moses is throwing the commandments because, because he's saying, you have turned your back on these and broken them. And here's the physical symbol act of the brokenness of that. Now the good news is God is going to restore those Ten Commandments. He's going to make them again. But Moses' anger burning hot here is not some small thing. Again, the people didn't make one mistake. They made a lot of mistakes. In verse 20, we see a a difference in leadership styles, Aaron versus Moses. Moses goes and he confronts the people. He takes the calf, he burns it to, to nothing, and he takes the ashes and he throws it in the water and makes the people drink it. Now, there's a lot of debate about exactly what this means. The kids have gone to Sunday school, so I think this is okay to say now. But what scholars think is happening here is that Moses is saying that I'm going to destroy this thing completely but then it's going to go into our water. You're going to drink it and your body's going to expel it because that's about how much use an idol has. It's a little rough, eh? <laughs> that seems to be what Moses is doing here. Aaron, on his leadership, when the people gathered around and said, hey, build us something, he went, yeah, no problem. Yeah, we'll go build a calf and we'll worship it. Moses goes, not only are we not going to worship it, we're going to destroy it and destroy it completely. So notice Moses says to Aaron, what, what did the people do that caused you to do this? Do you see that Moses kind of gives Aaron the benefit of the doubt there? Just a little bit? 
Like, did they gather around you and beat you into a pulp until you just can And, well, Aaron caved pretty quickly, actually. Here's the thing. He doesn't take responsibility at all. He blames the people. Right? As Moses comes down and he goes, you know these people, my paraphrase, they really suck. And so I just did what they wanted me to do. Right? Like he goes, they're set on evil. Now remember, Moses, you're being called to intercede and to lead a bunch of very immature followers of God. Aaron, you're supposed to be the priest for them. That's the calling that he's been given. Now, it hasn't been implemented yet. But he's going to have all kinds of moments where he has to step in and do the right thing, not be convinced to go along with the crowd. Matthew Henry and Thomas Scott in their classic commentary say this, We must never be drawn into sin by anything man can say or do to us. For men can but tempt us to sin. They cannot force us. Just think of it this way. I remember lots of times as a kid, I would, say, I would just lose my little temper and say to my parents, Well, my brother or my sister, they're making me angry. Everyone said, No, just me? Okay. No one ever said that? Good. You're more self-controlled than I do. And my mom would always say the same thing to me. He cannot make you angry, Greg. You're allowing yourself. You're in control of that emotion. That's your responsibility. People cannot make us do anything. Now, they can put us in some really difficult situations with some really difficult choices but we always have a response that we can make. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, probably one of the most misused verses in the Bible, we're reminded that says this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Notice it doesn't say provide the way of escape so that you can run away. To endure it. When the temptation is there in front of you, you have a response. Will I give in or will I do what is right? Aaron gave in real quick. Moses, in this moment, does what is right. Now again, not only does Aaron not take responsibility, he blames the people. He also kind of pretends like his actions had nothing to do with anything. right? It's like, I just said, you know, I guess give me some gold and I just threw it in the fire and out came this calf. And you're like... Okay, is that really what happened? If you're a parent, think to your children. If you're not a parent, you had a parent at some point. Think back to yourself when you were a kid. You ever like told, hey, go clean your room? And you're like, okay, I'll go clean my room. And you don't clean your room, but you tell your parents you cleaned your room? And then they walk in, they open it up, and it's just a mess. And you're like, oh, it's the craziest thing. I, I don't, one of my brothers must have come in here and, uh, and just messed everything up because I swear I cleaned it. I did, you know, like that kind of thing. So, again, maybe I'm just airing all my dirty laundry here. But <laughs> so often as a parent, we see kids where, where they say something, we know what's happened. And they're like, no, no, it's just crazy. I don't know how it happened. This calf just popped out, Moses. I swear I did not fashion it. Except the text already told us that he did. He doesn't take responsibility and he pretends like he's just an innocent bystander in this whole thing. So Moses destroys it. Moses deals with Aaron however he deals with Aaron. 
But then verse 25 comes, and this is where it gets real painful and real difficult. Moses says to the people, essentially this, who's on God's side? What's the implication there? You're either for him or against him. Moses doesn't give any wiggle room for somewhere in between. Not, well, I'm sort of for God. He says, who is for God? Notice what he's doing here, and I think this is really important. The whole tribe of Levi comes forward. Now, God's going to use the tribe of Levi in in an amazing way in the priesthood. We'll talk about that later. But he calls out who's going to do this, and the whole tribe comes forward. Do you think that 11 of the tribes made the calf, and one tribe was completely isolated from that? Oh, except for the fact that who's Aaron from? The tribe of Levi. So the implication here, and we see this as we read the text further and further to the end of Exodus, is that Aaron repents of all that he did. The Levites as a whole come forward and say, we will be for God. Now, there's really good news in that. Is that if you're reading the story and going, man, Aaron sucks. In that moment, he did. But he also repented. And God chooses to use him in amazing ways through the rest of the Old Testament here. Well, through the rest of the Pentateuch, pardon me. And so just because we make horrible decisions, and and the fact that maybe we've led horrible decisions and caused other people to fall into those horrible decisions, doesn't mean that God isn't a God of mercy and grace. Right here, Moses is saying, who is for God? He isn't saying who screwed up and who didn't. He's saying who will be for God. And notice the Levites step up before they know what they're being asked to do. Who is for God? And Moses says, and again, it's very clear that this came from the Lord, that Moses said, you're going to go to and fro, and you're going to go, and you're going to slaughter 3,000 people. Well, he doesn't give the specific number, but that's what we learn, 3,000 people. Now, if you go down the rabbit trail, commentators mostly are in agreement here that really what's happening is it's a systematic approach to either find those who were the ringleaders of that idolatry and, or those who would not repent. My conviction is it's probably both. Because Aaron was the ringleader, but he wasn't killed. Regardless of if that's true, whether it's the ringleaders, whether it's those that were going, nope, we're against God. I'm not... Sure, and and I don't think that that actually matters. But I do think this is where our theology matters if we're going to understand texts like this. Yes, we serve a God who is loving and merciful, but we serve a God who's just. And sin doesn't go unpunished. There's a doctrine that John Calvin referred to as total depravity, and it became quite a popular way of explaining this. And basically what it means is that despite the ability of people to outwardly do good, there remained an inward distortion which made all human actions fall short of God's holiness. In other words, this, it goes against what our culture teaches. Culture teaches basically you're a good person who sometimes do bad things. The Bible says something different. The Bible says that we're broken beyond repair. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
Now, in the coming chapters, he goes on to explain that the only way that we can be saved is by having a new heart. And that new heart will be given to us. See, the good news of the Bible is really good, but only if we really understand the bad news. Is that I am not basically a good person. I am sinful, or as David would say, I'm sinful from the time I'm conceived in my mother's womb. Before I've even had a chance to sin, that sin nature is passed in through my parents, and it's a part of me that distorts everything about me. Paul talks about in Romans 7, I talk about this passage all the time, but Paul talks about how now when you come to faith in Christ, you have a new nature, but that new nature and that old nature at at war with each other for the rest of your days. And are we going to submit to the Holy Spirit and do what's right and follow after him? Are we going to do what we know is wrong? And if we're really honest with each other, we know that sometimes we listen to the Spirit and we do what's right and sometimes we do what we know we shouldn't do anyway. It's because the sin nature is way more devastating than we realize. Just before Romans 7 and Romans 6, Paul reminds us that the wages of sin is what? death. What sin? Which sin? Sin. It's written that way for a reason. Now we're quick in our culture to highlight certain sins and go, man, if, this, if you're doing this, that's awful. But if you do some of this stuff, that's, that's okay. Everybody does that. Yeah, it's a problem, but it's okay. Well, the point is not that. The point is that our heart is desperately wicked. The point is that what we deserve is death. The total depravity of man means that every single one of us deserves hell, but God in his grace and mercy has chosen to rescue some of us. And even in saying that sentence, we might go, well, hold on, how come he gets to choose who he's going to rescue? And we get hung up on that. But here's the thing, is mercy mercy if mercy is given to everyone every time? It's not. And we can wrestle through with, well, well why these 3,000 people? Why, why did they not get a chance to repent? Or, or maybe they did, but they didn't respond. But it, it doesn't explicitly say that. And so when we read through Old Testament, especially when Joshua goes into some of the nations and conquers them, and, and sometimes they're told to drive them out completely and leave no one alive. And we go, God, how would, why would you, the, none of this makes any sense to me. It only makes sense if we think we deserve anything. And I think this is the biggest, one of the biggest struggles that we have in modern Western Christianity today. Is that we think that we're basically good and that God owes it to us to save us. Now that maybe sounds difficult to swallow, but I think actually the good news in that is if I am that desperately wicked and my heart is that desperately broken and yet God wants to save me, then his mercy is even more than anything I could possibly think. Who's going to give us a new heart? Well, the good news is, if you know the New Testament, you know this, is that Jesus is able to do that. And in just a moment here, when we read the text, we're going to see more foreshadowing of Jesus. And if we don't see it, then we're reading the Bible wrong. 
But I just want to mention this is next week in chapter 33, we're going to come to a verse in 19 that says this. I will be, this is God speaking. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Again, that's a tough one. But isn't that God's right? And that's where I think the rubber meets the road and where we get stuck is this. Even though these are difficult things and the sting of all these people dying is difficult to process, do I believe and trust that God alone is just and that he can offer forgiveness and mercy wherever he deems necessary? Or do I think that I should be the one to pick that? That's really the crux of it all. Now, verses 30 to 34, this is a foreshadowing of Jesus again. But I want you to notice this is Moses says to the people, right, you've, you've done an awful sin. Let me, let me go up to God and, and the mountain and I'll talk with him and we'll see if I can make atonement for your sin. Can anybody make atonement for sin? Jesus alone can make atonement for sin. And if we don't see that just yet, what we see then is God goes, or sorry, Moses goes to God and he goes, I recognize that this is an awful thing that they have done and they don't deserve your forgiveness, but he pleads on God's mercy anyway. Will you forgive them? But then what does he say? If you won't, take me instead. What does God respond? Does he say, thanks Moses, that's, that'll do. No, he says, essentially, he says, no, Moses, you can't. You can't be the atonement for sin because, Moses, you have your own sin to pay for. And so if we don't see Jesus in that moment, if we don't see the foreshadowing, right? We talked about this last week, is that Moses is a type of Messiah. He's a type of Christ, one who is representing Christ, at least in small ways. This points us to that, is that Moses can't make atonement for their sin, but there will be someone who's coming who can. That Jesus, and this is why it's so important that we read in the New Testament, that he was born of a virgin, that he was born in immaculate conception because he didn't have sin nature transferred down to him, but that he was holy and righteous. That he did not give in to sin, and so he alone stands as unique, saying, I can die in the place for you because I can take the wrath of sin upon myself. Or as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he, that's God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He's saying to Moses, Moses, you, you can't. You can't make atonement for the sin of the people. But he then calls him, but you go and lead. You go and take the people to the promised land. I'm still with you. And in fact, he says, I'm going to send my angel before you so that you know that. But then look at that in last half of 34. Nevertheless, there's still consequence for sin. There's still consequences beyond just the 3,000 people initially dying. Now again, 3,000 people die, but the vast, vast majority are shown mercy they don't deserve. But God says there's still going to be consequences for that. And a plague comes and scholars think that there's other things that come later that we'll highlight on another day. But the point here is for us to wrestle with this and see, I can't make atonement for someone else's sin. 
I can't step in and, and be that person for someone. But there was one who did. His name was Jesus. He became sin so that we could become righteous. God had a plan. God was bringing people and, and causing them to look and act a certain way so that we could see that there is one who is coming so that by the time Jesus did come, that it would be very clear to all. Here's the Messiah. Here's the one who can atone for your sins. Now again, in the coming weeks, we're going to talk briefly, we're going to skip a bunch of chapters about the tabernacle because we spent a lot of time in that before the summer. But what we're going to see is we're going to talk briefly about sacrifice and how the Old Testament sacrifices didn't forgive us of sin, but they pointed us forward to one day when sin would be forgiven. Moses, you can't, but you have been called to lead them, so go and lead them. Now here's the question that I want to ask you. Same question that Moses asks the people. Who is for the Lord? Are you going to serve God? Now, praise the Lord on this side of the cross that we're not going to be asked to go and slaughter people. Because I can't even begin to understand and, and wrestle with the devastation of that. But we are being asked, are we for God? And the implication is, or are we against God? New Testament talks a lot about while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Sometimes we think of it as like we're an innocent bystander like, like Aaron. But we're either for God or we're against God. And so my prayer and my hope is that we as a church would be for God, that we would take sin seriously, that we would repent of sin, that we would call each other into repentance so that we can grow and become more like Christ. That we love each other so unconditionally the way that God loves us that we're ready to offer mercy and grace even in the midst of maybe rebuke, even in the midst of correction. I think so often we think, well, I have no right to correct somebody else on their sin because I have sin. Problem is we all do, and so who's going to then correct anybody? So this is why when we correct people, we correct them with what Scripture says because we're adhering to what God's Word says, not what I think. Not how I think you should act or live, but how God says. Again, we can read Exodus and we can see it as history that is unrelated to us, or we can see that we have the same heart problem that they did back then. Praise the Lord, we have a mediator who has paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. That he has rose again from the dead. That he is alive. And that he intercedes on our behalf. The gospel is all over the Old Testament, if we're willing to see it. So my prayer is that as you go home, that you wrestle with that question, is who is for God? Will I seek to follow him and honor him and submit my life under him? And will I grow and change and evolve into the person God has created me to be? Or am I going to oppose him? Because those are the only two choices that we have on the table. Let's pray. God, as we spent a lot of time in this chapter, I hope and pray that it was fruitful. That we see the problem of sin, that we see the problem in our own hearts. And God, we live in a culture that's constantly telling us you're basically a good person who does bad things sometimes. 
the Bible says that we're dead in our sins. And that we need someone to rescue us. And thanks be to God for Jesus Christ who has rescued us. God, may we be a church that is willing to repent of sin. May we be a church that wants to call others into relationship with you and to help each other as we seek to grow and become more Christ-like. God, help us to not look at the Old Testament as irrelevant, but help us to see so much of our own heart in there. And may we also see the truth of Jesus and the story of the gospel. God, may we be people that honor you, not just with our lips, not just with our actions, but with our heart as well. May we live in the power of the Holy Spirit to do what is right and to follow you today. Thank you for this text. While we haven't gotten rid of the uncomfortability of it, I hope that we have seen your grace and your mercy alongside of judgment. And that you and you alone know how to hold those together at the same time. God, go with us today. We love you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray today. Amen.